Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello everyone, this is Brendan and I'm here with Mark and this is the Vet Gurus. It is the weekend in June the 29th, 2018 and Mark, gee, we have so much to talk about this week. We, I think what we need to do before we get stuck into the news, Mark, is go through the pile of emails that have been flooding our desks, Mark, the pile of emails. So um, it's about time we caught up with some of the emails from our avid listeners and patrons and we will talk about a new patron as well and we'll also talk about our exciting new sponsorship that's virtually cut and dried um i think they're about to sign on the dotted line and actually send us some money for a bit of a sponsorship so that's fantastic as well so i'm gonna jump right in mark before you even said hello (laughs) and say hi to katie from the us i think and katie um sent us a brief email saying hey guys i recently became a veterinary assistant and came across your podcast and i just wanted to let you know i love it well of course you do katie and hello to you katie that's our one of our first emails that we wanted to get across and I think what we need to do Mark is you need to have a little chat about one of my nurses and um, yeah also talk about what you've been doing this week so do you want to take Mel's email? I do indeed Brendan I want to just uh, I think that this is one that I think I need to read out in some detail. Um, and I, I want to, before I do, I want to send out my thanks to, um, to Mel. Thank her for um, her constructive criticism. So she was very happy to hear that Brendan had remembered her suggestion to have a few less doom and gloom stories and find some more feel-good stories. However... As she was preparing to pick up a sharp knife to start chopping veggies, apparently she does a lot of um, listening while she's doing um, a share of the domestic chores, she very nearly lopped off a finger when Brendan launched into his first story of how the human race nearly eradicated most other living things. And then the rest of the stories just made her feel worse and worse. She gave us a score, Brendan. She gave us a... (laughs) Review score. Um, she gave us uh, for the uh, happy ending stories um, in that particular podcast. We only got three. Plenty of well, room for improvement. Her uh, her um, school teacher comment was, um, but fortunately, she did expand her uh, area of review and. Uh, and suggested the rest of the podcast was very informative and entertaining and gave us an overall score of eight. Um, So uh, I just wanted to say uh, thanks for the constructive criticism, Mel, and uh, know that you are in our minds all the time when we're trying to search around and find those uh, happy, happy stories that bring a smile to our face. Well, Mark, we... We don't pull any punches, do we? We report the bad stories and we report the good stories. So, Mel, if there's not much happiness in the world this week, then we will report that there's not much happiness in the world of animals this week. But we will try. And I think we do have a couple of feel-good stories this week, Mel, but we may have... Well, actually, by the look of it, no, there is one very bad, feel-good, not-so-good, feel-good story, a feel-bad story definitely that you are going to take on, Mark, this week. But, yes, thanks for the um, follow-up email, Mel, and um, thanks for being a subscriber. And we do have a new patron, um, and for those of you who are new subscribers, you can become a patron. And what does that mean? It means helping us out, help pay our bills of our podcast bills and our hosting bills and that's going to patreon.com vet gurus or easier to just go to our main website which is vetgurus.com and there's different levels of being a patron and we're proud to announce mark we're very proud to announce our first rabbit patron and a rabbit patron is somebody who donates to us two dollars a month 
$2 a month. And that is Julianne. So hi, Julianne, and thank you very much. Every little bit is appreciated, and congratulations on being our first rabbit. And if you go to our Patreon site, you'll see the different levels of patrons and we have an extreme level our highest level which one day maybe somebody will take it up is a guru so you can become a guru and be part of the vet gurus guru number three um so there we go so i think we should get into the news mark um or actually no we should talk about what you've been up to this week and i think you were going to mention a couple of things or were you? And if well, no, not- I just have one thing to mention, and it's a bit of a non-veterinary thing. Um, we've been, I've had the greatest fun this week um, redoing our website. Um, uh, I've been really excited um, to um, change our staid old Sugarloaf Animal Hospital website and update it with some oh, bloody awesome um uh, um, photos from inside our own hospital um, and um, we've got a new appointment scheduler. These online things, Brendan, they, I'm just like amazed at what we can do online these days. So that's taken up a fair bit of my time this week. Ah, and um, I'll have to look at that. I haven't looked at Is it up now, your new yes, website? Yep. And do you want to tell our listeners what the website address is? <laughs> it's um, www.sugarloafanimalhospital.com.au. Ah, well, I'll um, make sure everybody gets out and spams it so um, the server goes down and uh, <laughs> you struggle to get any bookings. Well, maybe not. Um, so, no, I'm looking forward to that because I haven't looked at it myself. So I will immediately after our podcast or maybe during it if you get stuck on one of your monologues, Mark. I'm usually the one who gets stuck on the monologues. So let's jump into news. Let's jump into news, Mark, because I think our main topic today which is an answer to an email from one of our listeners, will take a fair bit of time. So let's rip through the news items. And I'm going to take the first one, Mark, and that is bees are getting stressed, Mark. Bees are getting stressed at work. And um, I found this quite an interesting article because as part of um, the teaching I do at one of the universities here, Melbourne University, um, I give a little a lecture on um, introduction to wildlife um, and veterinarian uh, veterinarian's um, role with wildlife and, and different industries. Um, and part of one of those lectures is I give a bit of an introduction to being a bee veterinarian and um, talk a little bit about veterinarian's role within the bee industry. And we talk about various things, including one of the concerns with bee colonies, the colony collapse disorder mark. And this little article talks a bit about, they did a bit of a study where they followed bees and they tagged them. And I'm pretty sure they did the usual with um, the tagging of the bees where they put little um, RFID chips, um, they glue them onto the bees and then they follow them around. And they were testing the bees' ability to switch their preferences between different scents um, when, when the smell changed to indicate the presence or absence of food. Um, and no surprise that they found the honeybees always need to be working at their mental best to navigate between the flowers and the hive. Otherwise, they cannot collect enough food for the colony. So the bees, which is obvious, um, the bees, well, I think it's obvious, the bees that um, had been foraging for a very long time or at high intensity were less able to learn new smells. So they became stressed and they struggled. So what's the moral of this story? Um, don't overwork yourself and don't overwork the bees um, because if you like honey, maybe they're not going to produce much honey because they're going into colony collapse disorder. So that's a news story number one, Mark. I love, um, I love that story, Brendan. You know, of course, that I have five colonies of, of uh, native Australian bees myself and so much of the medicine that applies to the honeybees, which is an industry in Australia that's valued at over $100 million a year. So much of that medicine applies to the, um, the, um, our native bees as well. Um, so I, so uh, I feel a personal connection to your instruction in this area. And at some stage, we should have a little bit of chat about the 
therapeutic therapeutic use of honey and um, unusual pets especially, but also um, other species um, as far as a veterinary use of um, honey. And um, I'd be very interested, Mark, when we talk about this, we probably won't have time to fill do it today with um, your thoughts on the different types of honey um, and I'm specifically talking about the Manuka honeys and, oh. and whether or not they are any better than the other brands or, or types of honey but let's put that down for another another podcast topic talk and um, jump into news story number two which is potentially not a particularly Nice story, and that's about cats, Mark. What do you want to talk to us about cats? I know this one's really going to make Mel feel bad, and I don't want to do that, but I do have to tell everyone about um, this very um, – it's it's a recent – the results have been published recently, but um, the study has been going on for some time where um, uh, some researchers led by um, some researchers from the – uh, Threatened Species Recovery Hub have uh, been looking at feral cats' bodies and, in fact, dissecting them to look at what they've been eating. And they make a bit of an assessment um, that uh, because the the transit time, the gut transit time, is about twenty four hours in cats, that what they find in the cats that uh, are um, uh, killed and then dissected. Um, represents what they would eat in 24 hours. And so the, the study uh, that uh, Dr. Wojnarowski's team um, have compiled by doing all these um, postmortems give us some insight into the damage um, that feral cats, feral cats alone, that doesn't include strays or um, domestic cats uh, owned by people, only the feral ones, um, they estimate that in Australia they eat more than a million birds, that's a million birds across this country, every single day. Um, and the really scary thing that, uh, that's that been published in the most recent round um, is uh, the reptile results. Um, and this was very, the second round of the study show that maybe as many as uh, 1.8 million reptiles fall victims to cats every single day in Australia. Um, and um, there's other research around the world which suggests that um, in years of relative um, abundance, um, feral cats on their own around the world could eat more than 3.5 billion reptiles in the wild um so look this is a bit um further distressing because um the cats are such very very good hunters and so many of the cats were found to um to exploit you know they would develop techniques and then they would eat all the um you know they might have 40 individuals of the same species um, in their stomach at one time. And so they very quickly could wipe out a local population. Um, and, you know, the, the, there was no reptiles that were, you know, uh, that were spared. But you would think that maybe large um, lizards or um, long-lived species, um, they, they, uh, they all were... were uh, suffering the consequences of cats' normal predatory behaviour. Um, so yes. this this is a really distressing story, Brendan. And it, it was astounding, I think, the numbers that they were talking about in this article. And it was a... It was a very good research um, study by the look of things with them. Um, and they've got some um, – we'll have the link on our website, um, vetgurus.com. They have some um, links of the – the stomach contents and um, a map of Australia with where the um, cats were were mainly doing the the feral cats were mainly doing the killing, which was mostly in the arid regions, wasn't it, Mark? Where mainly lizards um, were found. Um, but yeah, I was um, I was quite amazed at the um, just the the numbers, the sheer numbers that were involved um, with the with the reptiles, but also the birds as well. And and um, you know one of the striking photographs there is a. A dead feral cat with, um, I, th I presume, the whole 
gut contents there um, and the number of animals that are just laid out there um, from the from the stomach and the gut contents on the on the table was quite quite amazing there mark so yes um, no it's not a feel-good story mark and um, I don't know what the solution to this one is because I, I, I don't think the chances of of controlling the feral cat population in Australia let alone in other places in the world is 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 good um, yeah do we have a solution mark well I don't think we have one at present Brendan but I think it will be a thing where we where we need to keep our mind open and maybe there'll be you know things that are relatively um, distasteful that we need to consider but crikey's the the damage that the cats do just mean that if we don't do something there's you know we're going to lose um, um, lose these species and the interesting the other interesting thing about this research is that um, there is still more information to be published about the mammals that cats um, uh, affect so we know about the birds and the reptiles and the phenomenal numbers there but I'm scared that we're going to get a third round of shock and awe and uh, yeah anyway we'll get with yes. Well, I'd, I'll well, t- I'll tell you what, Mark. I'll give you a good news story. The wild jaguars of Mexico are increasing. The numbers are increasing, and with a current study reporting that four thousand eight hundred jaguars in Mexico are um, have been found, and that was used carried out using nearly four hundred remotely activated cameras installed through eleven Mexican states, um, and the numbers have bounced back over twenty percent over the last eight years. So there's a feel good story for us. Um, and the other thing that I think is a real positive with this is the growth of the jaguar population in Mexico is at least partially due to the conservation programs impl- implemented since two thousand and five under the country's National Park Service and the species received an an additional boost early this year when 14 Latina American countries signed an agreement on March the 1st at the United Nations implementing a regional conservation program for the jaguar for the next few years, well, actually until 2030. So there is one conservation program that seems to be working well and, um, you know, they're pretty stunning animals, aren't they, the jaguars? Um, all those big cats are, are amazing animals. Um, they're spectacular. Maybe not quite as nice as the small cats we were just <laughs> talking about, <laughs> um, those feral small cats. Um, yeah. What did so you think about the, 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 those estimates were made using cameras, weren't they? Did You said that, didn't you? Yes, yes. So, um, I, I'd, um, what did they do? They did. Um, they had four and a half thousand photographs over sixty days. Is um, the the period that they had the study for, and of the images, three hundred and forty eight were jaguars, and researchers were able to identify forty six individual animals, and they also captured over three and a half thousand photographs of. 20 species that were food sources for the big cat. So, yeah, these um, remote cameras. Um, have you ever set up one of these little remote camera no, situations? But they're getting more and more um, more and more uh, common, aren't they, and, and more and more affordable. I, on one of the, um, the, the photography websites, that uh, photography forums I subscribe to, they talk about um, stalking out particular sites in advance of a photo session by setting up these cameras so you know which species are there and um you know 10 years ago that wouldn't have even been a thing now now they're available to people like me and also serve the purpose of um of researchers so that they can gather information about animals like these jaguars well, perhaps that's a study the vet gurus need to do sometime in the future, Mark. If we get enough funding, we can have our own little um, camera set out there in the bush and we can see what we can capture on it. Um, which reminds me, we didn't talk about our our new major sponsors that are coming on board. And um, although it's not official, it virtually is. And that is um, two of the people we interviewed at the Australian Veterinary Association Conference or the companies that we um, spoke to and that. That is Chemical Essentials, which are the Australasian distributor of F10 products, which um, we've spoken about many times um, on our podcast, and also Specialised Animal Nutrition, which again is the Australian or 
um, distributor for the Oxbow um, products. Um, so we'll, we will be linking to them on our, our podcast website and also giving them a, a shout out regularly and um, perhaps talking a little bit about their products products as well but we will remain independent won't we mark um so if we say they have a crap product we will be saying that um unfortunately they have excellent products so we probably won't be saying they have a crap product um but um yeah thank you very much to um both of them jen and andrew um jen from sands and andrew from chemical essentials and we'll be talking to our um, supporters and our listeners um, a little bit more about um, them or a lot more about them in the future because the whole aim of um, gaining sponsorship, Mark, as, as you well know and uh, some of our listeners may not know is to try and help fund our um, podcast and the costs involved with the website and the, the program we use to record and the, and the um and hosting the files, etc. So yeah, so um, it's great to have them on board. But more soon about those two major sponsors for us. So and um, I just yes. I just want to echo your um, you know positive comments. We appreciate uh, for many years we've appreciated um, uh, Andrew and Jen's support of unusual and exotic pet medicine in Australia and um, this is just a, another example of their wonderful support. We appreciate it more than we can say. And before I go on to my next and final good news story, Brendan, I do just want to take this opportunity to point out um, the, the the wonderful photo, black and white photograph that adorned our, um, uh, our uh, podcast posting last week of the cemetery. I think you nailed it with that one, Brendan. That's an awesome photo. I just wanted to publicly tell you how good it was. I said to you off air that I would print that out and put it on my wall. It's so good. It was okay. I was I was reasonably happy with it. I don't, I don't think it was a fantastic photo. It was it was it was worthy enough to at least show to people um unlike a lot of the photos i i take but yeah i've I've, i must i must i know we mentioned before we started get back in to the black and white film photography medium format that i um that i've that i used to take that particular um picture as well so i've got the camera loaded i've just got to get out there mark that's the big step, isn't it? You've got to get out there and take some pictures. Well, you should take some pictures of dogs that are trying to communicate with their humans, Brendan, because um, there's been a recent study which highlights this exact topic. It took, um, uh, you know, the the thought that um, young humans, for example, figure it out very early. They they might not necessarily make verbal communication, but they see a toy they point to it, then they look at their parents and, and you know, once they get the reward of getting what they want, they figure that out and they start repeating that behaviour. Um, this pointing is known as a referential gesture um, and um, obviously the goal is to draw the attention um, of someone to something in the hopes of getting a specific response. Well, researchers have looked at um, dogs They've filmed dogs, photographed dogs, um, and studied those images and uh, and uh, um, video, um, and they've identified um, uh, referential gestures in those dogs where um, the dogs were trying to get their owners to notice or do something. They identified 47 unique gestures and then distilled those down to 19 true examples of referential gesturing. So I and I, I just find this uh, a phenomenal piece of research, just um, uh, actually categorising the forms of communication, nonverbal communication between our companion animals and us and confirming um by observation, the way that these animals were trying to get their humans to do things. So it wasn't yes. as simple as saying these 19 gestures meant 19 things, but um, it did. Uh, the research is, for me, it's compelling. So the first takeaway, do you want to just touch on the first takeaway, Brendan? 
the first takeaway is let me grab this story. <laughs> I'll, I'll is... get ready for the next one because the okay. <laughs> four most commonly used and successful, hardly surprising, are the most commonly used ones you would think uh, because, you know, because they're successful, um, the gestures involved requests for being petted to get food or drink or to obtain a toy and go outside. Hey, they're my four most common gestures to um, my wife and my family, Mark. Um, number two was, with all the dogs, the most common gestures involved eye contact. They involved either direct gaze, staring, or gaze alternation, looking back and forth from the owner to the object of the desire and that- of its desire. And, in fact, Mark, um, I, yeah, I'll I tell you what, one of my – um, greyhounds here. Jezza um, is a bit of a dag, and for those of you who are non-Australian listeners, which is a fair number of us, you'll have to look up that that term, a D-A-G, a dag, um, a, an Australian colloquialism. Um, um, he's a real dag because he um, he does that quite frequently. If he wants to go outside, he'll look at me and then look at the door and then look at me and look at the door. Um, more often than not, it's me, him looking at me and then looking at his food bowl because um, he's a pretty um, food-driven um, dog compared with the other greyhound I have. But, yeah, it's in the eyes, Mark. That's number two. What is number three? Well, the, the, um, the – the third conclusion was that, every, that, that there are differences, that first of all, every dog is different, and that is some dogs have a much larger vocabulary than others, um, which, I mean, once again, when you think about it, is, um, it's not that surprising. Um, it was not uncommon for dogs to employ several different gestures to obtain a single goal, and they would um, you know, switch from gazing to pouring if the first uh, technique was not successful. Um, and, and even more interesting for me, the dogs who lived with multiple people tended to have a larger repertoire. That's not the surprising bit, but they would customise the way that they communicated with each person. So they might um, do the, the whole rapid look here, look there for one person um, and then have a different tactic for another. So um, it really is their ability to communicate with humans is really very impressive. Um, the ability to successfully communicate across species um, is theoretically more cognitively challenging than within a species. Um, and to have a companion animal like dogs to do it and do it well, um, I find that just amazing, Brendan. Yes, and the more I read this article, now that I have read it, Mark, and I've just read it a second time, um, the um, I agree totally with everything it says, and it, and I can relate it as I was just saying with um, Jezza and um, Pacho, other greyhound. I certainly see those behaviours in in my two dogs, and yeah, I think that part number three was. Um, yeah, um, just like humans, we can have dumb humans and smart humans and we can have dumb dogs and smart dogs. <laughs> and I must admit, I love I love Jezza, but he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, he's not sat near me, so he can't hear me um, at the moment. Um, yeah, he's certainly not the brains of the family there, but um, yeah, there we go. So there are new stories today, Mark, and I think we need to jump into, we won't, I don't think we'll do – we won't do a product review, and I've got – have an exciting product review, as we spoke off air, coming up in the next couple of weeks. So that may be next week, probably the week after, but let's leave the product review this week. Well, Mel has done a product review. She reviewed us, didn't she? And she gave us a, a fairly middling score there, Mark, so um, hopefully we can improve. Um, so I think we should jump into our main topic, and that is based on an email we got from a – one of our regular listeners and our regular stalkers, Nick. Um, and good to hear from you again, Nick. And I'll just read out some of his email, Mark. Um, I've been enjoying the recent episodes. I especially find the rabbit dentistry episodes helpful. Thanks, Nick. Our practice works with a large number of house rabbits and I've been starting to dip my toes into dentistry. Good on you, Nick. Um, and we will be having more rabbit dentistry and exotic pet dentistry topics. They seem to be pretty popular, don't they, the ones when we do the um, dentistry topic. But my question today, um, this is Nick speaking or emailing me, is about visceral gout in Vietnamese cave beauty snakes or snakes in general. 
I've been working with a breeder who seems to do a good job with husbandry and recently they submitted a couple of snakes for necropsy. One of these had white plaque lesions throughout the mucosal surfaces as well as all the major organs and serosal surfaces. I submitted some organs samples for histopath. Both samples came back without evidence of urate tophy. My research so far has found that in general, as always, husbandry is the key. Most sources say the increased hydration and make sure only feed appropriate protein sources for the appropriate for the species. Other than allopurinol and husbandry changes, do you have any other recommendations or experiences? Um, He goes on to say a couple of other things, but I think that's a good introduction. So our main topic this week, Mark, is gout in reptiles, and we will limit it to reptiles because that's a big enough subject on its own. And, um, well, Nick, I think you've actually answered most of um, your 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 questions yourself, but we will work through um, gout in reptiles um, um, logically, I think, Mark, or, or maybe illogically, depending on um, the way we work, Mark. So what is gout, Mark? Do you want to talk about what is gout? In, yeah, for sure, Brendan. Um, gout... Um, it, it's particularly it's um, it's one of my it's a bit of a, a, a soapbox topic for me because um, being a practice that sees lots of birds and reptiles, we get to see um, we get to see lots of cases, and unfortunately, it's like Nick Nick's um, email. Not all of them are um, as positive and uplifting as we'd like them to be. They're sometimes a little bit distressing. So gout is um, a situation where uric acid, the end product of purine metabolism in um, in many reptiles and birds um, and some other species, um, where it exceeds um, the ability of the body to excrete it. And so the concentration builds up. um, And once the concentration of uric acid builds up, there is um, precipitation and that can occur in, generally we accept it to occur in um, the uh, joints as articular gout or around some of the internal organs, particularly the heart um, and then maybe the kidney or liver um, as visceral gout. Um, Often articular gout will occur just before visceral gout, but it's really unpredictable and we'll have some animals that have profound tophy, the the deposits of urate crystals in their joints and their internal organs will be fine. Um, And then other times we'll have animals that have completely normal joints but have um, very impressive white plaques over their internal organs, Brendan. Oh, I've, I've clicked in my um, mute button on and off, um, so hopefully you can hear me now. <laughs> yes, so the overproduction or the failure to excrete uric acid. Um, so I think we'll then head on to what the potential predisposing factors, and you have basically sort of covered it, and Nick covered it as well in his actual email question. So the predisposing factors that I always think about, Mark, with a, a reptile with suspected gout is diet. So husbandry is always husbandry, isn't it? Well, 90% plus of the problems we see in unusual pet is off is related or are related to husbandry. So I look at the diet especially and the protein in the diet. So I get back to basics with that and I think what type of reptile are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a carnivorous um, animal or are we dealing with a herbivorous animal? And what type of protein are we feeding this animal? Are we feeding a herbivorous animal a meat-based protein that we sh- and if we are then perhaps that is causing the problem with this animal are we feeding too much protein um, not just inappropriate protein to that animal so I, I always look at the diet and that's where getting back to quizzing the client on what have you been feeding your animal for the last x number of weeks months or years um, dehydration certainly has a potential part to play with it or at least lack of adequate water um, for that individual so has that animal got, does it have access to to water even if it doesn't look like it is a species that frequently sits or, or stands over the water bowl and drinks we need to provide our reptiles with the option 
of being either to able to either bathe in water um, to help um, rehydrate um, or to actually drink water regardless of whether or not um, it looks like you see them drinking much. Um, and then the other obvious one that, I, that I'd always think of is organ failure and, and the classic one there is, is obviously renal failure or renal compromise. So if we have issues with the kidneys there, then it will make them predisposed to, to the gout. Um, and, um, well, what sort of signs do we then see, Mark, with these um, reptiles that have have um, gout, um, even though we haven't got to the stage of actually diagnosing it? What sort of signs, what will they present with um, and um, with those two particular types of gout that we tend to see? Well, just before we talk about the signs, Brendan, I always do this. You're like pushing forward, trying to get to the end of the podcast and pass out as much useful information as possible. And I always just go back and touch on things that you've just talked about, <laughs> slowing us down. But I did want to just point out that those predisposing factors, um, one of the ones that um, people don't often think about is the the um, is the thermal environment of the reptile, that um, that uh, Renal, uh, the secretion of uric acid in the kidneys of reptiles is a uh, is a secretory process, an active process, a metabolic process, and it is temperature dependent. And even uh, you know five degree difference, uh, five degree outside the preferred optimal temperature zone, will influence that metabolism so much that there might be a threefold failure a threefold drop in the amount of uric acid that's secreted by the kidneys. So the same animal, same uh, hydration status, same um, uh, access to water, same function, you know, functional kidneys, five degrees below its uh, um, uh, preferred optimal temperature zone will um, secrete three times less uric acid and you just need to add one of those other predisposing factors that you talked about in, and then we're in deep trouble. So I think uh, paying attention to the temperature is also a very useful thing. Absolutely, and we could even broaden it to other husbandry issues as well. For instance, lack of UV light um, and vitamin D metabolism and then metabolic bone disease variations and an influence on, on renal function as well. So, yeah, great Great point, Mark. So thanks for slowing me down and, and getting me back on track and um, not trying to run to the finish line and to explain things. So let's get moving, Mark, and um, talk about the signs that we may be seeing with these animals when they're presented to us in the veterinary well, this, is, this is one of those really frustrating things, Brendan, because um, they're often these animals are often presented at the end stage as the, you know, the problems um, are not always reptiles do such a great job of concealing these problems until they're um, calamitous until they're just uh, beyond our ability to do anything about them so I would be uh, lying to if I didn't say that the I would say the majority of cases that we diagnose are diagnosed at post-mortem um, but when we are able to identify things during in you know in the live patient the sorts of things we see are just a general deterioration that they're um, not moving as fast they're not as interested in food um, their pattern of elimination changes they're often weak and they don't necessarily move around the enclosure normally and they certainly don't seem to find their refuge their normal sort of hide away as they normally would they'll often sit out in the open they you can clinical dehydration in reptiles is a little bit more tricky to pick up because skin turgor is not as uh, obviously, you know. In I think I tend to find skin turgor in uh, dogs and cats very easy to assess, but um, there's different species of reptiles where the skin might tent up and and that be completely normal. But once you're familiar with the tension in the skin you can definitely identify dehydration and as well that will show up on any blood test that you do um they're often uh they they will but not 
always show up with swollen joints. Um, and there are other reasons that um, reptiles will have swollen joints, but um, certainly one of the things we want to rule out uh, is articular gout in any reptile that shows up with puffy peripheral joints. And particularly sometimes in a smaller species, you can even see the white color of the tophi in the joint. So frustratingly, Brendan, I wish I could give you a pathognomonic clinical sign that you could go, yep, this one's got gout. But unfortunately, they're often really sick and hard to pick up. Yes, and I have very similar situations with the cases of gout that I confirm in that they um, they can be a bit of a challenge to detect, although whenever I see a lizard that comes in with obviously swollen joints um, and then I start quizzing the client on their, their diet and their husbandry, often I have a high degree of suspicion that we might be dealing with a gout case there and then I jump into one of the diagnostic steps that we'll talk about in a sec to... Um, virtually um, confirm that we do have the issue going on with them and just remembering that the the whole pathogenesis of the way this um, gout works in reptiles is that the tubular secretion of the uric acid um, is not occurring so we end up with the blood uric acid levels above a certain threshold mark and then it precipitates out into tissues. And there's a, I think there's a couple of theories there, Mark, isn't there, about the, the different types of gout. Um, we generally lump it in reptiles into the two different types, articular gout. Um, so we're getting these tophi or these crystals forming in um in joints and and um, and also visceral gout, where we have the the precipitation into organs and and throughout the rest of the body. Um, and the, one of the theories I think is that um, visceral gout's probably um, or, or articular gout is the same as visceral gout, the same process, but it just hasn't progressed as much um, to 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 form the visceral gout. So it may. Um, precede the visceral gout um, but um, I still think there's a lot of work um, being done in in the human field isn't there with gout and um, I still haven't quite worked out the whole process of how to control and or treat um, gout in humans so it is quite a complex um, um, process and, and very difficult to control so let's jump on to yeah I sort of hinted at the, the diagnostic steps Mark what are the what are the steps you sort of generally take within your clinic for a suspected case to try and try and confirm an anti-mortem? Well, we usually, um, uh, usually, particularly if we see articular gout, then obviously we uh, we we would consider taking radiographs. But generally, the the uh, urate tophi are not radiographically evident. Um, I haven't had much success sticking our ultrasound probe onto the joints, um, and when we stick the ultrasound probe onto the body to get an image of the coelom. I often, I often can't um, you know, determine whether I've just got an overly reflective surface of an organ or whether I actually have tophi there. So in my hands, the diagnostic imaging has not been particularly useful. I like sticking needles into joints just in general, but particularly if they're swollen on the reptile um, and you can aspirate tophi from those affected joints. Um, I'm, we've just um, upgraded our uh, endoscopy gear and I'm really keen to, um, to try and uh, have a look inside more of these suspect cases to see if we can pick them up at an earlier stage, but also get a renal biopsy um, and uh, maybe make some assessment about renal function as well, Brendan. So I think endoscopy is going to be the most useful one for us at the moment. Yes, well, I think that the, the simple, quick and, and um, dirty method of trying to diagnose it um, with those articular ones is what you mentioned there, just popping a, pop a needle in there. And um, if you do manage to see those tophi, it's it's pretty well diagnostic i think um if you manage to get that that sample straight away so positives are positive with that and it's certainly something i do as well um with them and yeah the radiographs some of them you do see um obvious um 
lesions on the radiograph, but but certainly not not commonly like you mentioned as well. So I'm in agreement with you again, as usual, Mark, with what you mentioned there. Um, we'll, we'll talk off air about endoscopy because I've got a couple of interesting stories to chat to you about that, Mark. And also I think we'll talk about the ultrasound diagnosis as well with what we're going to what we will review shortly as well. So there's, there'll be some exciting things on the next few podcasts. So so the bottom line with that is diagnosis can be frustrating, can't it, Mark? And as you mentioned earlier on, it's often at, at the necropsy um, that you end up diagnosing it, which is similar to what um, Nick found. Um, so how do you try and treat the mark? Um, what, what is your success rate? 70%, 99%? <laughs> I think I'm think I'm more in um, you know the uh, Mel's range here. Maybe I don't know. Even three out of ten, I wouldn't want to brag that um, we're doing any better than that with the ones we diagnose while they're they're um, they're still alive. And the other thing too is that while while treatment is often poorly effective, um, when it is effective, I don't know that we're um, absolutely reversing the process or just maintaining the animals um, at a stage that they're not getting any worse. So, yeah, I, I, treatment is a frustrating endeavour, uh, Brendan. It, we definitely focus initially on rehydrating the reptile. We um, uh, either um, direct uh, parenteral fluid therapy, intravenous or intrasalomic fluids. Um, we often you know, um, for mildly affected animals, we'll just regularly soak them. Um, and uh, while they, you know, we know bearded dragons don't absorb things through their skin, but um, sitting them in water will force them to drink more and they probably absorb some through their uh, cloaca as well. Um, we make a particular effort, you've talked about it a number of times, but we make a particular effort to analyse the diet and really make an effort to reduce dietary protein. Obviously, the uric acid is the end product of um, protein breakdown, and uh, if we can decrease the amount of uh, protein, then we will produce less uric acid. Um, and uh, particularly if the uh, uric acid levels in the blood are high, then um, using allopurinol. Um, uh, we've had um, only a couple of cases that I could honestly say we I felt we'd um, uh, managed them well. I know the published literature suggests that uh, um, allopurinol has a great effect at um, decreasing blood uric acid levels, and there's even some reports that, um, that uh, after several months of treatment, um, some signs of joint uh, of articular gout that those signs may resolve. I can't, I'd love to be able to brag and say that's been my experience, but I'd be being disingenuous. We've had um, only what I would consider very, very um, modest results with our, our allopurinol therapy. Um, and we always, as always, pay attention to pain relief. These, I think part of the reason these animals are um, uh, lethargic and don't behave normally is that these um, urate tophi, just as in humans who have gout, are exceedingly painful, whether they're in a joint or on the surface of a, uh, an, an organ, they cause a lot of pain. And so um, aggressive treatment with analgesics is definitely indicated. And probably, you know, we steer clear of, um, of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs um, in this instance, um, and we probably depend on oral tramadol to help us control pain in these animals more than anything else, Brendan. Well, your success is probably better than mine, Mark. Yes, I must admit that the vast majority of the reptiles that I see with gout um, are no longer with us, or they will be shortly no longer with us after I've seen them because I think a large percentage of them are at are at the end stage when we when we are presented with them from the client and uh, I think it is extremely difficult to treat them and yeah I don't think there's any magic formula Nick unfortunately to treat these animals and um, 
I really, I'm fairly aggressive. I don't know whether that's the correct word with, with um, considering the pain um, that these animals are going through, and um, the majority of them, are, I am recommending euthanasia um, very early on in the course, and and not going down the track of of, of prolonged thera- therapy. And and I agree totally with you, and that all we do with most of the ones that we put on the therapy that keep plugging away they are doing exactly that mark they're just plugging away um, and we're not doing much to help prevent or cure the condition if, if that's a possibility um, with them so I think um, it's a really poor outlook and I, I think it's getting back to what we mentioned at the start mark where it's just really reviewing the husbandry um, of that client and that's what Nick needs to do with this breeder um, if he's seen several cases from this breeder he needs to start really going over the husbandry in detail with the client and, and working out um, what potentially is wrong with the husbandry. Is it the diet? What are they doing that's causing the the outbreak or the cases with um, with gout in these animals? If it's only an odd individual in a, in a large collection, then then we'd potentially expect that with um, individual um, conditions because you will be getting problems in a, in a large collection, won't you, Mark? So... Yeah, so uh, treatment-wise, I must admit it's rare that I end up placing any of them on um, the drugs like allopurinol, Mark, because I'm, as I mentioned, I'm fairly aggressive with with saying to the client, look, this animal's suffering now. Outlook is is pretty grim um, for this individual, and and maybe it's time to to help it along its way and and provide a a um, a gentle euthanasia. Um, so yeah, I haven't got any. Any wonderful um, treatment methods, Mark, um, to help with that? No, I think um, as you said, um, uh, the, uh, probably the the one additional thing that I would add to your already wise words is, um, and I take that this is a common thing that I find when I talk about cases like this, and it was one of the take home messages when I read Nick's email was that um, that he was working with a a breeder who uh, seemed to do a good job with husbandry, um, and um, and I think that the key thing here is that many times, well, I I certainly don't want to cast aspersions on Nick's client, and um, and certainly they will, uh, you know, uh, he he will have a better understanding than of them than me. But I know my clients, some of them at least, are known to try and make me happy by telling me what I want to hear rather than maybe what they think I want to hear rather than maybe what actually I want to hear, which is really accurate detail about the, the husbandry. I'm concerned, Mark. Um, I'm very concerned. I get a lot of my clients coming in and saying, you look good today, Brendan. What are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm trying to refer to the time where they, they tell me that their, their temperatures are in a... <laughs> <laughs> so I've really lost your train of thought there, haven't I? I have this vision yes. of clients coming in to talk to you and tell you how good you look. <laughs> um, no, no, but, but, um, I was focusing on that whole husbandry thing, and I do think um, one of the tricks we've um, developed as clinicians to help get over this um, is to skip the whole verbal thing altogether and to get people to um, to show us video. To take a video on their smartphone of their enclosure of the um, of the thermometer. Don't don't let them um, come in and say you know the stuff that they know we want that we'd like to hear. Um, but just to get accurate information on their smartphone, a short bit of video footage. Show us the uh, the gradient. Show us the the actual heat source, the temperature on the thermometer at the time they take um, these. That information, when we get that um, video footage, often highlights things to us that we aren't able to uh, elucidate any other way, no matter how good-looking we are, Brendan. Yes. Um, no, well, you know what I was getting at then, that if they're saying I'm, I'm, I'm looking okay this week, they're, at, they're lying um, to us. But, no, you make a fantastic point there in that um, I think it's very important, especially with the unusual pet owners, to encourage the clients to not only record what they have. Well, 
um, to take pictures, but 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 get a database going and weigh their animals regularly, whether it's a bird or a reptile or a small mammal, and set up a little database on their little computer at home and keep track of it. And they'll see trends, and it's and it's good good practice to encourage them to think about, for instance, with reptiles that over the year, over the winter period, for instance, their reptile might lose a little bit of weight. And that's normal for that particular individual over the winter period when it slows down with its eating. Um, and same story with the temperature gradients, with all of those sort of husbandry issues, um, recording it, writing it down and not just trusting your, your memory. And as we know, our memory is not as good as it used to be, Mark, especially for some of us. Um, so making sure that they record those things, write them down, um, and also filling out those little history forms is what we also do for for new clients where they fill in, download a form from our website, fill in the form and write down the details of the husbandry and hopefully they're not telling us everything we want to know on that form. But I think you learn a, a whole lot of things from clients filling in forms. One, most people don't like filling in forms. Um, two, some people have no uh, are completely dyslexic. Um, three, some people, um, a lot of people, cannot spell very well um, these days. And four, some people write very rude things on your forms. Have you found that, Mark? <laughs> I can't say I have, Brendan. Uh, the other, the other <laughs> results, um, I would certainly concur with. But we don't get too many people writing rude things on our forms. Maybe we don't send enough of them out. Different demographics, Mark, different demographics, yeah. Um, so um, I prefer it when they just come in and say how 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 good I'm looking today and that I'm looking well um, because um, I usually trust the clients. But now after what you've been saying, that maybe that, that they mean that um, you're not looking too well. So I'm going to be second-guessing all my clients for the next week or so, Mark, um, trying to interpret what they are saying to me. So maybe I should concentrate more on the patient and stop chatting away to the client and um, getting behind in my consultations. So that's gout. So, Nick, I think you were spot on with um, your comments you made in your email that we read out most of your email um, in that um, we need to start looking with these gout cases that um, our treatment is probably going to be ineffective in a large number of cases because they're often at, at the end stage when we see them. Um, and if this client does have more than one or two or three animals that we're having a little outbreak of gout in um, his collection, then look very hard at the potential contributing factors that we mentioned, which includes especially the diet um, with them. Yeah, is there anything else you wanted to say about gout in reptiles, Mark? There was one last um, final piece of, um, of information I was going to mention. Um, Nick's uh, um, email was specifically about those beautiful, um, well, I call them beautiful because they're often referred to as the beautiful rat snake, the Vietnamese cave snake. Um, uh, those snakes are one of the species, this is one of the things I think about um, reptile medicine, that there's often very peculiar things about individual animal, uh, individual species that we may not even um, be fully aware of yet. And um, these cave snakes have particularly strange uh, habits in that they do um, stay out of the light. They will spend um, extended periods of time deep in caves and so I've got no doubt that they will have some very peculiar metabolic um, uh, features that might mean they're more prone to it than other species, given the same husbandry um, conditions. So I'd, I'd be interested to... We don't see those snakes here in Australia, but I'd be interested um, to know about their different metabolisms. And many of our snakes in Australia have vastly different... Um, details of their husbandry so the things that would work for one of our desert species like the the woma or breedles python they don't apply for um uh, maybe one of our tropical species like the green tree python um, which would doubtless get into um, trouble with urates if kept the same as those other species brendan yes and 
as you mentioned, we certainly don't see that particular species. So, yeah, there may be factors there that's specific to that species. And um, the, one of the interesting things with that species, Mark, is that they are cathemeral, um, meaning that they are active at random times is the, is the, during the is day. Is there mark. a word, um, Brendan? Is there a word yes. for people who like new words? Um uh, wankers, I think, <laughs> is the word for that. <laughs> yes, and I think on that note, Mark, um, we should end um, this week's podcast and thank you all for listening and keep sending the emails in. So we, we've we ripped through a few of our emails, um, so we're getting the numbers down there. But um, we love hearing from our listeners, so please send us emails, ask us questions, and thanks, Nick, for your very um interesting um, email there and um, it ended up being a topic of the week so um, send an email and you might end up having a topic of the week and we will talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.